This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. Hi, I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Bob Mankoff talks about his illustrated memoir, How About Never? Is Never Good For You? Then PW Mystery Reviews Editor Peter Cannon recaps the Edgar Awards. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. There's not much exciting going on on the fiction side. David Baldacci is still holding strong at number one. Uh, But we do have a new number two. This is Natchez Burning by Greg Isles uh, from William Morrow. We gave this a starred review in Publishers Weekly. We say it's much more than a thriller, Mm. a deftly plotted novel that doesn't flag for a moment. Despite its length, it's 800 pages long. Um, So given that it's 800 pages, $28, um, to see it still hitting uh, near the top of our bestseller list at number two, and would probably be at number one if it weren't for Baldacci's star power. Mm. Uh, that's pretty impressive. It's the the fourth novel featuring Penn Cage, uh, who is now the mayor of Natchez, Mississippi, and uh, he's haunted by the ghosts of the past, some traumatic political assassinations, the Ku Klux Klan, a lot of in- exciting, interesting stuff is going on in this novel. And we say that its main strength comes from his struggle to balance family and honor, which is always something readers find interesting and appealing. Oh, sure. So that's, that's on the fiction side. What's happening in nonfiction? Well, number five, debut, uh, Diane Keaton's Let's Just Say It Wasn't Pretty. Uh, in this book, she looks at beauty, aging, and the importance, as she says, of staying true to yourself. So that's at number five. And at number 11, uh, we don't have very uh, many uh, debuts either on the nonfiction list, but this is the, uh, the, the, the other one high on the list. Clean Eats, over 200 delicious recipes to reset your body's natural balance and discover what it means to be truly healthy by Alejandro Junger. And, um, He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Clean and Clean Gut, and this is a cookbook uh, featuring, as as the subtitle says, 200 recipes, easy to prepare, to help you restore your and your body's natural ability to heal itself. That's at number 11, and just going further down, just a little bit down, this is uh, number 12. It originally was at number 46, but jumped up last week by fiction writer uh, George Saunders. Uh, It's a Random House book. And the title's Congratulations, by the way. Some thoughts on kindness. And this is a, uh, uh, was a commencement speech that was passed around the web. And uh, we say, uh, this essay hits warm and tender notes about straying from safety zone of feel-good advice. In a tone by turns grandfatherly and fun-loving, renowned fiction writer Saunders identifies his main regrets in life as what he calls failures of kindness. And perhaps the bump is due to maybe commencements around college starting up. I was going to say, this sounds like a great gift for the graduate in your your life. I'm sure a lot of people are picking it up with that in mind right right now. Exactly. So, and that's what we have on uh, nonfiction. Well, slim pickings this week, but we'll see what we have for next week. Great. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Bob Mankoff will tell us all about his life of mentoring cartoonists and finding just the right cartoon. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Bob Mankoff on the line. His new memoir is How About Never is Never Good for You, My Life in Cartoons. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a real, real pleasure. So it's so fitting that you would tell your memoir in cartoons, but how did you come up with the idea? You know, it happened sort of organically in that I had... Uh, I've been writing a blog for The New Yorker for New Year's called From the Desk of Bob Mankoff. And it was very natural for me to uh, uh, illustrate what I was saying and even to connect completely with what I was saying with images because, well, really, I've been doing that for a long time. And also, I created the Cartoon Bank, so I have sort of at the ready a database of all 80,000 cartoons that ever appeared in The New Yorker. And so when I was, whenever I was at a loss for words, I wasn't at a loss for pictures. So tell us a little bit about the Cartoon Bank, because it's such a fascinating resource. Well, I, uh, Cartoon Bank, I created the Cartoon Bank uh, uh, in uh, about 1990, 1991, because uh, the problem for cartoonists, the problem is for what nobody called them content providers then, but I guess that's what we were, is that we produce a lot more content that can... Uh, possibly be used, certainly, in a magazine like The New Yorker, in which there are only about room for about 17 cartoons. And as I explain in the book, uh, the cartoonists do, I'd say on an average, of about 10 cartoons a week, every week. So over the course of a year, you know, 50 weeks, whatever, they produce 500 cartoons. If you're really, really lucky, about 20 or maybe 25 cartoons might appear in the magazine. So there's a lot of unused cartoons. Now, some of them were bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, nobody bats uh, a thousand, but uh, a lot of them. I would say I would say there's a segment of the cartoons that most people would think are exactly like the New Yorker cartoons, and then a segment that uh, other people would like and think they may be a little bit cornier than New Yorker cartoons, but they would still be popular. Anyway, there's a lot of unused cartoons, and so I thought I would uh, make a resource a little bit like a photo stock house, which uh, uh, housed all the cartoons. And at that point, when I started, it was all the cartoons in New York rejected, yeah. uh, which were a lot. And I scanned 20,000 rejected New Yorker cartoons, made a wow. pretty successful business out of it. And then when the New Yorker saw it was successful, they asked me to do it for them. And I, then I created a cartoon bank, which has those images as well, all the cartoons in the New Yorker. Wow. So that, uh, that's, that, that's that story. And that's been successful for the New Yorker, for Condé Nast, and especially for the cartoonists for which it provides a lot of supplementary income. So I've earned a lot, 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 lot more money from the cartoon, which is uh, uh, which the book takes its title from, No Thursdays Out, How About Never Is Never Good From You, than, than I got paid for it originally. Well, and I would, that was going to be my next question. Is you know, I remember that cartoon, and it was hilarious. And I just want to ask, how might that title uh, apply to your life uh, as the book that you've written here? Well, you know, the truth is that they put the title on there because it was so well-known. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> that we, that we would, it's the marketing people who did it, uh, you know, uh, because everybody, uh, uh, everybody knows it. So uh, I, I don't want to say it's a ploy, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's a ploy that worked, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, um, 
it, it's, a, it's a very, very well-known phrase now. As I point out in the book, it's in the Yale Book of Quotations. It's been ripped off on T-shirts. It's even on thongs. I won't have to go into that. <laughs> it's there as well. Uh, and I have it copyrighted, but one of the things about the Internet age is that I mean, you could be chased these people forever. Uh, I don't know. For all, for, for, for all I know, you know it's some um, Russian cabal. Right, right. Well, I, and I, I'm sure you've been asked this many times before, but for our listening audience, how did that cartoon and that phrase come about? It, it, it's sort of unusual because most of the cartoons that come about is people think, well, I don't know, you're out at a party or you overhear something in a conversation. For the most part, all the cartoons come about because you're just sitting at your drawing board with a cup of coffee and that's your job and you, you just go into your own mind and do it. That particular cartoon did not happen that way. I was on the phone with uh, a cartoonist, Dick Klein. I haven't seen Dick in years. Dick and I had sort of an on and off relationship. He was a prickly guy. Uh, and uh, 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 in fact, you could you could you could actually leave the LY off that. <laughs> See that I got to say something dirty without actually saying. It. Uh, the, <laughs> anyway, I was I was on the other side of the phone saying, "Well, Dick, can you meet me on there?" You know, I was asking, and they said, "No, I can't do this." And then I just said, "Hey, Dick, how about never? It's never good for you." <laughs> and and then I said, and "Then you know, being a cartoonist and you know a, right. a, a phrase scavenger, I said, oh, that's not bad. Let me just let me just fit that <laughs> in the right place.'" And and then I I have a little setup, you know, no Thursdays out. Uh, but never is never good for you. Uh, I often explain in talks, little comedy wonk talks about why it's funny, which, you know, pretty much kill any humor, but worth going into a little bit, uh, is that uh, what, it, what it is is a clash of politeness and rudeness. And a lot of humor is like that. It's essentially a mashup. That's why you need the, uh, the little tag, tag to the end of it. You say, it's never good for you. You could end, the, you could end that joke with no Thursday that how about never. Then it just sort of sounds mean, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but when you say it's never good for you, you continue the thing or somehow he's being polite. <laughs> right. While he's being completely rude at the same time, and I think you know that's a recipe for a certain type, of, certain type of humor. So as they say, that cartoon has been very, very, very good for me. And of course, the macabre part of it is I know what I know. I know what cartoon they're going to cite in my obituary. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you could you could even uh, preemptively illustrate your own obituary the way you've done. Yeah, for the yeah, yes. But you know, so, so that's okay. That's okay. You know. So how did you select the cartoons to include in this memoir, and did you create new material for it? I pretty much selected cartoons. You know, a lot of it is the history of cartooning. Uh, and and uh, so the, the new part was it's not just uh, cartoons. It's photos, ephemera, it's, you know, all, all sorts of things. And I almost think, I mean, I don't want to sound pretentious, there's almost a new way of, it's not a new way really, but I think maybe it's a way very much influenced by the internet of communicating, where images, pictures, drawings, you know, whatever whatever it is you can grab, you can now insert right into text. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it might it might be my diploma from the high school of music and art. It might be the uh, you know the the. the the, the classmate, the girl that I had the hots for in 1959, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that I, that all of a sudden I can get, I can get, uh, you know, I can go up to classmates.com and get the yearbook and find the picture right. <laughs> of the person or a piece. So you see, it, it, it's throughout the cartoons. A few of them I recreated because I couldn't remember the cartoons I did in '66 or '67 that I took around to the magazines that were rejected. So I did draw those over again. Then I found cartoons from the history of cartooning, from Punch magazine, from cartoons from Judge and Life, and uh, 
And many of the cartoons, I'd say about well, maybe well over 100 are not my cartoons, but they illustrate you know, one of the themes of the book, which is the, the evolution of New Yorker uh, cartoon humor. And, you know, the thing that I'm, I guess, other than the cartoon that I think I'm most proud of is that if you pick up the New Yorker today, it still looks like the New Yorker people still like the cartoons, but most of the cartoons have been done by an entirely new generation of cartoonists, ones that were not doing cartoons for the magazine when I became cartoon editor in 1997. And that, and that was a difficult task for me, partly because I didn't even realize it was a task at the beginning. As I say in the book, I took over in 1997 from Lee Lorenz, who was a fantastic cartoonist, wonderful, wonderful editor himself, who retired, still does cartoons for us. I took over, you know, these veteran cartoonists who were trained to do 10 and 20 cartoons every week and you know they had come up sort of when there was a minor leagues of magazines I mean I don't want to say that too disparagingly in New Yorker in the top but there were hundreds of magazines in the 40s and 50s and 60s when these people learned their craft and mm-hmm. I really I just took over I said oh yeah I mean I, 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 I'd like to think I brought something to it but, but really if anybody stuck their hand in that pile of 500 cartoons they'd come up with some pretty good ones but if I had just gone on without this smoothly functioning machine wasn't going to go on forever because I, I needed a new bunch of cartoonists, but there were no magazines anymore, yeah. really, or very few, no minor leagues. So I had a mentor train and sort of learn myself how, how to do that. So that's part of the story. So what does being a cartoon editor entail, since you've talked a little bit around that? What, what does it entail now? And you said originally you could just reach into that pile and pull out anything good, but now... Well, I think, I think one of the things it entails is mentoring. Mm-hmm. In that there aren't... So, so if you see talent, you have to nurture it. And you have to train. You actually have to give them my talk about sort of humor 101. What's right for the New Yorker? What isn't right? New York is not an isolated comedy environment. It's not a comedy club. It's right there with serious uh, material. People are very easily offended. You know, basically, you're going to have to remove a lot of the levers that we people get laughs from, which is real aggression, uh, obscenity, or transgression, that type of stuff. Stuff that you see all over the internet, stuff that you hear in stand-up, which is funny. That Actually, it's the heart of humor. The heart of humor comes from these drunken revels. <laughs> sex and drinking, you know, going back to Greece, but there's no sex and drinking on pages in New Yorker. So you basically, you have to, you, you have to rely on different tools, which are, are cleverness, wittiness, uh, 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 cog- you know, cognitive stuff, observational humor. And so a lot of the young people come in, you know, they're, they're stuff that would be perfectly fine just within the confines of the office or a joke that you tell somebody else will be, will not work in a New Yorker. Uh, so that's it. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is you have to tell them, if you see any talent, often you have to say, you're not ready but I want you to come in every week for the next six months and show me material. Mm. I, want to, I want to show that you can do it. I, can you, uh, uh, for, most people can come up with an idea for a cartoon. And some people can even come up with a batch, ten ideas for cartoons. But can you do this week after week? Right. Do you have something to say that also reflects your personality? I guess one of the things I tell people, I'm not looking for cartoons, I'm looking for cartoonists. So each of the cartoonists in the New Yorker magazine has a distinct way of thinking, a distinct personality. That only comes out through the process of doing. 
and doing lots of stuff. So in terms of your style, so there's just the drawing style. I say, well, you know, I've got to see what type of style they are. Are they a realist? Do they draw realistically? Do they have those draftsmanship chops to do that? Most people don't have that anymore. That doesn't mean that they can't draw. They can, but you're not going to get, you know, stuff that looks like Charles Saxon or Peter Arno, although there's a few who like that. But do you have a style that's essentially you know, a Thurber-esque style, which still is very, very hard to do. I mean, it's what I call good-bad drawing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you saw all the bad-bad drawing, you know what I mean. I, I have committed enough bad-bad drawing. You know, like there's good-bad singing, like Tom Waits. Right, exactly. Dylan. You know, it's, and, it's, it's just and, not and a talent. And that's actually rarer, in a way, than, than people who actually can sing very well. So I've seen that, and so so some of the cartoonists, we have a new a new guy, he, he uh, actually is living in Taipei, he's from England, he was an architect, now he's living for a few months in Queens, his name is Ed Steed, I, he's almost in every magazine, he draws, he draws in a silly way, but he draws directly in ink on the paper, and so, you know, he can draw a cartoon in which... I mean, it's ridiculous to describe, but there's a pumpkin who's draw, who's painting at an easel, and there's a person looking at it, and the, I don't know, the pumpkin looks like a mess and everything. And, and the pumpkin is saying, annoyed to the to the person, "Do you think it's good or just good for a pumpkin?" <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, that can only if you only you have to have a crazy, silly drawing, right? You know right. And he just does it perfectly each time. And that's, uh, that was difficult because originally he came in and I said, well, can you draw better than this? And he said, no. And, and then I, 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 I'll use the Derber quote because Derber at one point, who was the originator in a way of this type of drawing, he was, he, he was, uh, uh, he was drawing. It looks like he was like practicing. And E.B. White, who actually uh, helped Thurber become a New Yorker cartoonist by pushing his cartoons to Howard Ross, said, what are you doing? And, and, and Thurber said, I'm trying to become a, you know, a better drawer. And he said, uh, don't try to get any better. If you got any better, you'd be mediocre. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and there's, there's something to that. Mm -hmm. There's something to that. You know, you can ima imagine if Dylan really tried to get better at singing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. You know, so, so that, so there's that. So it's, it, it, it's complicated. And partly you're, you're, they're a therapist, they're shrink, they're encourager, because it's still hard. We're not, when, we don't guarantee that we'll buy anything from anybody so you can go weeks without it. So, that, and then there's actual editing in which you look at the cartoon and you're looking at the words and you're saying, or the image, and you're saying, no, this is a little wrong. Uh, the punchline, I don't know, it seems weak. It seems too clunky. Let's see if we can rephrase that. That doesn't happen that often, but it does. I talk about it in the book. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes, sometimes I'll see an image and I will suggest, along with the, with the cartoons going along, something actually pretty much completely different than they've done. And that if they agree to it, we do that. So, I, I, how do cartoonists work? I, and I know not all cartoons have captions, but but with the captions, and we'll talk a little bit more about captions later on. But sure. uh, do the captions come first? Do this, does the conceit of, of of words come first, or or well, does the I illustration? Have, I, they're, they're, they, divide, they divide pretty much into two different groups. Mm -hmm. There are the doodle firsters mm -hmm. and the word firsters. Mm -hmm. Ah. And and so there, are the, and it depends. Like Jack Ziegler, a wonderful cartoonist, has about fourteen hundred cartoons in the magazine. Over that, he always just draws, and then as he's drawing, things occur to him. Matt Diffie, uh, Danny Shanahan, they write. They write right. first. Uh, other people combine both, and, and often that happens at the drawing board. The drawing is sometimes it's sort of a synergistic thing where you sort of have half an idea. You know, you often it's 
you know, you're annoyed about something. And so let's say I have an idea that, and, and I, this is an idea I haven't worked out yet, but that, you know, when you, when you, when you, in airports now, you know, there's this incredible, incredibly, if you're at the wrong end of the line, humiliating sequence where they tell about their premium gold, wonderful passengers. They're not so premium gold, but still before you. Uh, they're people who are completely ordinary, but somehow still better than you. <laughs> and then finally, you scum are allowed. Now, you have an idea. See that? So that's like the concept, but that's not a caption, right? Right. That's like a skit. So then I'd have to think how I, I would have to, I, I'd start drawing that. And in the drawing, I, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't wait until I had the perfect caption. I would start drawing it mm-hmm. and drawing the people and stuff. And then things would have, so both might happen sort of, you know, back and forth uh, till, till it worked out. And often as you're drawing, you get completely ide- different ideas for the caption. And that drawing itself is a creative act in which there are these happy accidents. Uh, so it's often a back and forth. It's, uh, but, but as I said, there are people who definitely write first. Uh, and if they write first, uh, often it tends to be uh, uh, images that aren't that strange in themselves. You know, so when we look at our caption contest, I talk about that in the book, you know, you see a very incongruous, a very strange image to start with. People, guys are walking by cubicles, and all of a sudden one of the cubicles has a grave in it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's unusual. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So often the, 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 the caption then uh, uh, it might be fairly simple. You know, it might, it might be, you know, you know, uh, you know, he got buried in his work. Now, that in itself wouldn't be funny, and it's sort of funny, but if you combine it with that image. So often the people who do, who, who, who do straight, uh, straight lines, I'd say often the, the image might not be that incongruous to start with. The people who do incongruous images first, uh, like Jack, a doodler first, will, will then come up with the line. So I was going to say, you know, for the doodle firsters, it sounds like you're having your own personal caption contest. Exactly. That's right. You're having your own personal caption contest. And just referring to the caption contest, really, which people, which is great, people love it, five to 10,000 people enter every week. Uh, just because you win the caption contest, you're not a cartoonist. Oh no, definitely not. I think I, I think I was a finalist once. Oh really? And and really? then I and then I gave up. Well, that's <laughs> I was like, that's, good, the, that's, that's the pinnacle of my career. That's, that's pretty good. But but one of the things I always say is the cartoonist does the heavy lifting there. Yes. Mm-hmm. In you know providing that image, it's not just a random image. <laughs> you know, not any incongruity will work. And often the cartoonist does have a caption for it. But uh, but uh, I I have a database of all two, two, over 2 million entries, so I'm going to look you up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I I might be embarrassed that I might not. I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I mean, it's always a mixed bag, even in the cart- sure. what the cartoonists do themselves. One of the things I often say is the difference between the amateurs and professionals is amateurs actually think all the stuff they do is great. And I, you know, I have to, I have to ask you. And since this is a podcast and the FCC isn't listening, we can say these things. How, how many times a week for each individual contest do you get someone submitting the caption "Christ, what an asshole"? Not too much. Huh. Not too much. And I don't think that's the best universal one. No, I don't think so either. It's just sort of taken on a life of its own. But, but, but but that's an interesting thing because it's, it's. it's, it's one of the phenomena now that we see that maybe always existed in a small way, humor about humor, mm-hmm. meta-humor. 
you made that, uh, 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 you know, okay, so uh, Christ, what an asshole, or, the, or a better one, of course, is Corey Archangel, who's a digital artist. For every single contest, he puts the caption, and you can go up on his site, every single contest has a caption, what a misunderstanding, huh. and which works almost for everything. Every time. Yeah. Everything, and it's funny, but it's all, but, but it becomes, what's interesting is that it, the first time you see it, it's a little funny. When you see it over and over again, it gets funnier. <laughs> for every single caption, because I've seen people look at it, and that's sort of unusual now, because you have more of this sort of absurd mashups, where it's not real. The joke is not really occurring there. The joke is the context of the whole thing, the context of play. So you mash up uh, Kanye West tweets with New Yorker cartoons, right. Charlie Sheen's <laughs> rants with New Yorker cartoons, Justin Bieber's idiocy. <laughs> well, you know, so each one you're really laughing at. You're making fun of the New Yorker. You're making fun of Justin Bieber, and you're just having having fun uh, fun yourself. But you know, my whole feeling is it's interesting, but I, it's meta human. But uh, I guess my bias is meta isn't better. So I'm sorry. How many submissions did you said you get for for uh, each for for every week for the cartoon? Between five and ten thousand. My. God, <laughs> that, I mean that sounds like a full time job. Just going through them all and making choices. It, it is sort of. We worked out a procedure in which I, I'm, I'm a little bit nerdy, so I have these computer programs so I can sort them by similarity. <laughs> so you know, so you're you're looking basically at things to look because they come in in in, in different groups and in, in, in different categories, basically not five or ten thousand different ones. So uh, you know, if you were evaluating. Uh, Let's say there was a Jack Ziegler cartoon in which, I mean, uh, it sort of kills the cartoon, but uh, let's put it that there's, a, there's a, a, a large amphibian in the court, a very uh-huh. large one, in the dock in the court, and his defense uh, 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 lawyer is rising to say, objection, Your Honor, alleged killer whale. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so right. we have hundreds that are like that. Right. Objection, I must protest, but they're a little too long, a little too this, that. And so from that, you oh, want to take the best one, right. which, which is most, you know, most uh, concise. So because we can sort it a little bit by similarity, some of that is just sorting alphabetically, of course, can sort by length of caption. So it makes it a little bit simpler. Then my assistant, who usually comes from the Harvard Lampoon and now is from Columbia, see, we're very, but we have integrity. We look at every single one. Then he or she gives me uh, a breakdown of maybe 60 or 70 from the different landscape, the categories, the sort of the comic landscape for each one. Then I pick about eight or nine. I use SurveyMonkey, and I send it out to about 40, 50 uh, uh, editors at the New Yorker. I see what they say. Then I pick the three, and, and off we go to the races uh, with people voting on it. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's no way an infallible process, but we, we actually give it a a good try. <laughs> well, Bob, thank you so much. I, I hate to have to wind this down, but uh, we're we're at our time limit. Well, what well, can bit. you do? That's okay. You know, I, I I've, I've been doing. Uh, I, I, I've been plugging the book enough, <laughs> you know, with interviews. So I'm always happy to just have a you know, have a have a conversation and and hope that I say something marginally new on the topic. We definitely have. We've been talking with Bob Mankoff, and you can find his book "How About Never" is never good for you in stores right now. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. It thank has, you. Has for Bye-bye. us too, definitely. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Mystery Reviews editor Peter Cannon takes us to the Edgar Awards, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Mystery Reviews editor Peter Cannon is here to tell us all about the recent Edgar Awards for mystery writing. Hello, Peter. How are you? I'm okay, Mark. Good to see you. You too. It's good to have you here, as always. Um, So tell us about the Edgars. As we were just discussing before we started this recording, um, they're named for Edgar Allan Poe. That's right. I was also saying that Edgar Allan Poe only wrote three mystery stories, and yet it is he who gives the name to the award, which is the highest award in the mystery genre. There are many conventions, but Mm -hmm. the uh, annual uh, Edgar Awards banquet, that's the pinnacle uh, in the mystery field. And how did that come to be? I mean, like you said, only three awards. I mean, three uh, three uh, uh, stories. Well, you know, years ago, I suppose, when people organized this, they were all rather literate and had read Edgar Allan Poe and said, gee, even though he's written only three stories, let's name it after Poe and not Conan Doyle or Wilkie Collins, who, of course, only did two novels. I mean, they could be the Agathas. Uh, now... That reminds me, there is another convention that gives the Agatha Awards. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's held, uh, I guess, a month or so after the Eggers, and that is uh, aimed at the uh, cozy and traditional mm-hmm. uh, mystery field. And we must not forget, there's also the Thriller Awards that are now held um, every uh, July in New York City for thriller writers. In the old days, thriller writers were more or less subsumed within uh, the, the mystery world, and then they decided uh, about seven years ago they needed their own organization and banquet and set of awards, which so far don't have the name of a person. I was just going to ask, right. They're just called the Thriller Awards. Now, my theory is that they're waiting for some eminent Thriller Award writer to to uh, die, and they will <laughs> they will they will honor that person. It's appropriately <laughs> right, morbid, right. <laughs> posthumously. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, given that Poe was best known for his his more dark, fantastical, horrific fiction, do the Edgars retain that that connection to the the dark side of writing? Oh, of course. I mean, there are any number of uh, crime novels that are extremely dark. And so, yes, in some ways, it's highly appropriate that uh, Poe should be the, the, the uh, presiding genius mm-hmm. over, over the field. Now, there was a wide range of uh, candidates, the fi- finalists for the, for the awards. I mean, the two big ones are Best Novel and uh, Best uh, First Novel by an American Author. Now, the winner of the best novel was William Kent Kruger for Ordinary Grace, mm-hmm. which I believe was covered as a mainstream novel. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I don't recall covering it in mystery, but he d- does have a very high, highly regarded regional series, I think, set in um, it's either Minnesota or Michigan. 
uh, and he has a continuing detective. Uh, he's the sort of writer, I think, that's been maybe underrated, much appreciated by by his fans, mm. but it's great to see him uh, get get this recognition. Uh, there, there were... Uh, uh, you know some better known names that were were up for the award now for the ber best first novel uh, I happened to read the the winner which was Red Sparrow by Jason Matthews mm -hmm. and this is actually a spy thriller I think I remember you talking about on some previous uh, venture onto the radio show. That, that's entirely possible. About a year ago, I mm -hmm. went to a, a lunch mm -hmm. for this author, the launch party, and was inspired to read it and thought it was very well done. Uh, the PW Review edit, uh, freelancer who reviewed it also thought this was exceptional. So I'm, I'm pleased to see that it won uh, the, the award in its category. So why Best First Novel by an American author specifically? Good question. I don't. I don't really know. Maybe they, they're worried that there there will be too much competition from uh, non-Americans, mainly you know the British or the Scandinavian, Scandinavian. Scandinavians. Right. Uh, obviously, what, one interesting bit of scuttlebutt I heard indirectly was that there's some question about limiting the awards and talk about limiting it to Americans to crime novels and mysteries as opposed to thrillers. Mm. Uh, Red Sparrow was a, was a thriller. And, of course, now uh, there's a, a separate organization and, and award ceremony just for thriller authors. And I was thinking, you know, that makes a certain amount of sense. On the other hand, if they did restrict it or Kept, kept thriller uh, writers from being eligible, there'd be a lot fewer <laughs> books mm -hmm. that would be uh, up, up for, for awards. And I imagine publishers might not like that too, too much. Right. And of course, thrillers, as opposed to crime novels, tend to be higher profile, to you know, be, be the bestsellers. Um, you know, sort of, you know, your ordinary who done it you know for for the most part mm -hmm. um, is sort of, sort of on a on a lower plane right they they have big library sales but not you know huge um, right sales that will put them into the the bestseller list and you know it's not just been thrillers that have kind of encroached. I was remembering that a couple of years ago, The Company Man by Robert Jackson Bennett won the Edgar, um, which surprised the hell out of him because he thought he had written a science fiction novel. <laughs> so, and I and I just actually read his book that's coming out in September, which is a whodunit. It's just a whodunit that happens to be in a fantasy world, mm. and right. and it's very much like a classic. You know, the murder happens immediately. We're introduced to the investigator who gives us their perspective. The whole book is about the investigation. It's just not set here or now, and mm -hmm. um, and so I was wondering if there's also some sense of that kind of encroachment from the speculative genre. Oh, of course, I mean th there's uh, lots of crossover, as you well know, mm -hmm. Rose, in your, your own categories, and often it's a question of marketing. Uh, he here's an example. You know the author, uh, The Martian. Uh, yeah, and, and Andy Weir. Andy Weir was marketed as an SF thriller 
and it's essentially a Robinson Crusoe story set on the surface of Mars, where mm. a team of astronauts is gone, and there was uh, an accident, and they had to abort, and everyone got off the planet except this one rather nerdy but mechanically inclined uh, guy. And the book, which I've read, is about his efforts to stay alive on Mars until a rescue party comes. Mm. So it's an adventure story. Mm -hmm. It's uh, science fiction very much, and it's an engineering story about how he constructs various Mm -hmm. devices and uh, to to survive. And but you could say basically it's it's a thriller. And it could well be eligible next year, sure, uh, as you know, best first novel you know, for for an Edgar. So, uh, in some ways, I think that's an advantage having it so wide open. Right. Yeah, the, these definitional debates tend to go on a lot in in the fiction award uh, worlds. I mean, there's one going on in romance right now about what qualifies as a romance. Um, on the on the Nebula ballot, which is one of the big science fiction awards, is Hilled by Nicola Griffith, which is technically not fantastical at all. It's a historical novel, but it's written in such a way that all of these world-building techniques taken from speculative fiction are used to build an extraordinarily detailed portrait of the past. And so, so many people have, have read it and appreciated it as though it were fantasy as though it were set in another world rather than simply our historical world that it ended up as a finalist for this fantasy and science fiction award. So it's interesting seeing when people want to kind of defend the borders and when, as you say, they feel they benefit from taking in a lot of options. Right, right. It's it's often up to the individual or the marketer and they say, okay, we should go this way or, or, or that way. And, you know, there, there are no hard and fast rules. So what was it like being at the Edgar Awards ceremony? Yeah, tell us, where is it held? It's held at the Grand Hyatt Mm -hmm. Hotel in in Grand Central, where it's been held, I think, for many years now. There are two cocktail parties beforehand, uh, one of which is for the Edgar finalists. And then everyone uh, streams into the Banquet Hall, which is this huge space that holds hundreds. I, I don't know exactly how many attendees there are, but... I think they're close to maybe 40 tables and maybe 10 people at each table. Uh, as a member of the, uh, the press, I'm assigned arbitrarily each year to a different table, and this year was Grand Central. And I was sitting actually right by the stage. My seat, in fact, was the closest to the podium. Now I had my back turned, but I, I had a ringside seat. So the, the evening consists of a number of speakers, just like at the Academy Awards, where right. uh, someone introduces the nominees, somebody else reads the names, and then the winner comes up to the stage and one hopes makes a short speech thank, thanking people for the award. Now, there are a number of special awards that you know in advance who's going to get them, and this year... Two writers were inducted into the Grand Master category, Robert Crace and Carolyn Hart, who represent very opposite spectrums of the genre. Carolyn Hart writes traditional cozy mysteries, 
set on an island off South Carolina. Her heroine runs a mystery bookshop. Anyway, her points were very much uh, short and sweet. She was followed by Robert Crace, who writes, I think, a crime series or two, more sort of you know, gritty, uh, violent, uh, brutal stuff. And he didn't know when to stop thanking people. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't play him off? Well, you know, <laughs> I, want, I don't think anyone had any idea in advance. I mean, everyone's advised not to run on too long, but he was just so overwhelmed by the honor, he, he just kind of lost it in terms of <laughs> not knowing when to stop. Right. And, you know, after a while, just thanking people you've never heard of, it gets a little, a little thin. Well, rather than uh, run on too long ourselves, I think we're going to need to wind this up. But thank you very much, Peter, for coming by and giving us that insight into the award ceremony. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 